The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. Well, you've been standing for a while, so we'll read the entire 11th chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 11, we'll start at verse 19. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you... God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. In him, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Thank you for the incarnation, for the word becoming flesh, dwelling among us. Thank you that the Son took on flesh and blood just like us, yet without sin, so that through death he may render him powerless, who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver us from the slavery of fear which we were held all of our lives. Thank you for your Son, your only begotten Son. We pray now that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truth of your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come actually to a really, uh, actually a very, very serious um, theological issue that's been raised by the text that we are in which is Romans 11, 21, and 22. And so we expounded that the week before, and then last week we talked about how the warnings work. Right? And my whole premise was that we have these two sets of texts, and we get to these warnings, threats, or conditions And we immediately jump to the question, can the person lose their salvation? And what I'm arguing is, before you jump to that question, you have to ask a different question, and that is, how do the warnings work? If, If you don't answer that question and you just jump to, are they saved or lost, you end up short circuiting, in a sense, the power of that text. So you do have two sets of texts, and I put all of those or all the texts that I had in my notes there. But there's, let, me just, let me just, by way of very quick review, you, you hear warning, threat, and condition in this, right? Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And so Romans eleven twenty two actually gives us a warning and actually a condition and a very strong threat. You can see all three actually at work in Romans eleven twenty two, And we looked at a number of passages that are warnings, threats, or conditions. And those warnings, threats, or conditions basically tell you that if you quit the race, if you don't cross the finish line, if you apostatize, you will not be saved. That's what those texts teach. Okay? There's another set of texts. And those texts give us not threats, conditions, and warnings, but those threats give, or those, those texts give us promises and assurances. And those are the texts that, that frankly, that we love, right? So my sheep hear my uh, voice, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. And uh, my Father, who is greater than all, right? My hand's in his hand. So there's the promise. You're not going to be lost. If you're one of Christ's true sheep, you won't be lost. And you could look at 
any few dozen of those kinds of promises. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. You're kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation to be revealed at the uh, latter times and so on. And so we have all of these wonderful promises that tell us, in a sense, two things. They promise us, on the one hand, that God preserves his people all the way to the end. And they also promise that we will persevere all the way to the end. So you have two very different sets of texts, and the uh, the issue that we looked at yesterday, or last week was, was to see how they fit together. So again, the place to start is not to jump to the theological question of, do these texts teach us that you can or can't lose your salvation? But rather, ask yourself, what is the function of the warning? What is actually the, the design? How are they supposed to work, right? So just thinking about the warnings, admonitions, conditions, threats, so forth, we said there are four views of how the warning passages work. So if we could have the first slide, we're going to do this really quickly. So the first slide is the loss of salvation view of the warnings and the admonitions, So the guy's running the race, right? We did this last week. He hears the warning. He hears, uh, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you'll be cut off. He hears that, and what he thinks is, this raises doubt as to whether or not I'm going to finish the race. This is the guy that sees the warning sign uh, on, on Highway 50 to slow down to a certain speed, and he thinks, oh my goodness, I'm not gonna make it to my destination safely. I'm probably gonna die. All right, and so this guy thinks that he can fail to get to the prize and lose his salvation. Now, I want to just say two quick things about that. First of all, this view, let me say three things about this. First of all, this view is wrong, okay? That's the first thing. The second thing is it's wrong because it marginalizes or just outright ignores the promises of God to keep us. And then, and this is my favorite part, those who hold this position, the threats and the warnings prove too much. Now, what I mean by that is this. Take, for instance, um, so there are different denominations that are Arminian, teach you can fall away, lose your salvation, but in those denominations, guess what you can do? You can come back up to the altar and get it again, right? So in the course of of a month, you could lose and then regain your salvation like four times or eight times if you have a PM service. All right? Now, here's the problem. I say they prove too much. For in the case of those, this is Hebrews 6, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened, tasted the heavenly gift, the powers of the age to come, Right, and they fall away, it is impossible. You hear that? It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. So if this is the way we understand the warning passages, it ends up proving too much because what it says is, if you do fall away, your chances of being saved again are zip. Right? Jacob Arminius calling, telling me that I'm wrong, but it's okay. <laughs> now, next slide. So that, to me, that view is, is, is it's so totally lopsided that it doesn't take into account the promises that God will keep us. The second is loss of reward, okay? Now, this is the guy who's running. He's already saved. Notice the track is not salvation. The track is sanctification, and the prize is not salvation, but rewards. And so if he abandons the race, all he loses is what? Rewards. It's all he loses. And what I want to say about that view is that just as sure as the Arminian view minimizes the promises, this view minimizes the threats. In other words, It is not simply the loss of reward that constitute the heart of a threat. It is actually the the loss of attaining final salvation. When you read 
Otherwise, you will be cut off. Do you go, oh, I might end up scrubbing toilets in the millennial kingdom. I might not get a reward. No, the threats are far too grave to simply be a reflection of missing out on reward. Third view. This is... This is the best slide, by the way. So, you got... Some of you know who you are. Already saved, right? Prize is eternal life. Track of salvation. So, to abandon the race proves you were never saved. So, then you look at the warning passages as a test of genuineness. So, the significance is you hear the warnings, you hear the threats, you hear the conditions, and what you do is you actually run backwards looking, was I really saved? Was I really saved? Was I really saved? Was I really saved? And it becomes basically every time you hear Romans eleven twenty two, it's like, it's not, oh my goodness, a warning. It is, was I really saved? And some people will scrape their spiritual insides, torturing themselves. Was I really saved? Was I really saved? Was, it, was I sincere when I was six and prayed with my mom? Was I sincere when I was 12? Was I, am I sincere right now? And what they do is they run backwards looking at the beginning of the race to see if they actually started. Okay? Now, I do want to say, if you're running, even if you're running backwards, you are in the race. Okay? <laughs> okay. Number four, means of salvation. So this view sees salvation is already not yet. Okay? Racetrack is salvation. And the warnings and admonitions call for faith that endures to receive the prize. So this guy runs and he hears a warning or a threat or a condition. And what he does is he says to himself as he's running, I need to keep running. I'm not going to stop running. I'm not going to quit the race. And so those are means by which he runs. An old theologian who's now in glory said to me one time, Brian... The elect believe in perseverance. Everybody else once saved, always saved. Think about it. The elect take the threats seriously and persevere. You have a whole group of people in the church that don't take the threat seriously and think they're safe and secure from all alarm. Okay? Now, this is the last one I present. God's means of salvation view of the warnings and admonitions, which means, of course, it's the right one. Even if you couldn't figure out which one was right, you know it's right because it was the last one. So, here's the big question. What then do we say about those who profess faith and even show signs of sincerity and yet ignore the threats and at some point stop running the race. Okay? In other words, what do, we, what do we say when the warnings don't seem to work? Or to put it another way, what do we say about the, someone who supposedly has started the race but yet they Quit the race. That's a huge question, right? And I want to I start. I'm going to give you four things, and we're going to try to do this somewhat quickly. But I want to I say something before we get to the, the biblical principles. On a personal level, seeing someone that you know, and that you love, walk away from the faith is more devastating than if they'd have been diagnosed with a terminal illness. If you don't believe that, it's because you don't believe in the reality of eternal punishment. Okay? 
There is nothing more painful than looking at a loved one or a fellow church member who walks away. And there's a part of you that simply says, seriously, I would to God they would have rather had cancer and died in the faith than to abandon the faith. Now, what do we make of those who quit the race? The first thing is pretty simple, and that is we have to understand the New Testament perspective of both already and not yet. So on the slide there that was up, you had the already, which is the beginning of the race, and then you had the not yet, which is the end of the race, all right? And so let me just, let me just point out a few things to you. You guys know this if you've been around for any amount of time. The Bible speaks to us repeatedly in, in terms of already, not yet, Right? Things that are already and then things that are not yet. Well, salvation is actually an already not yet reality as well. So let me just read this to you and you tell me what part's already and what part's not yet. Okay? When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Already or not yet? How do you know it's already? It's past tense. Not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So is the renewing and regeneration of the Holy Spirit already or not yet? Already. And how do you know that? He poured him out, poured him out, past tense. Verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, already or not yet? Already, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Heirs of the hope of eternal life. Already or not yet? Not yet, right? So right there in the same passage, predominant emphasis on the already, right? And so there, there's, there is an absolute, for the child of God, there can be absolute certainty. I've been born again. I've been justified I'm one of his, right? But I also know that there's a not yet. I have the, uh, I'm, I'm going to be an heir of the hope. Hope is always a future word, right? Okay, hope of eternal life. Um, mm, uh, there's, there, there are a lot of not yet passages. So for instance, um, let me just give you one. Paul in Romans 13, 11 says, your redemption is closer now than when you first believed. Is that redemption already or not yet? It's not yet. If it's closer than when I first believed, then it's just closer, but it's not yet. Right? So in other words, and we've said this a thousand and one times over the years, you can say from a New Testament perspective, I have been saved, I'm being saved, I will be saved. All right? Those three tenses. Have been, am, and will be. Now, turn over to one more text. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Already or not yet? And not yet. Born again already unto a living hope, not yet, right? To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Already not yet. Not yet. Clearly not yet. Five, who are, who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Already or not yet. Definitely not yet. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and honor, glory and honor, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Already or not yet? 
And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, although you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory, already or not yet. Already. Right? Well, yeah, and not yet. But mostly already. Okay? Verse 9, here it is. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Woo! Right now, you rejoice in him, joy inexpressible, full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith. Have you obtained the outcome of your faith yet? No. Okay. So verse 9 ends on a not yet. Okay. Now, why, why emphasize something as, as wonderful as that? Because as you look at salvation from a biblical perspective... You have to view salvation as a whole package. And that whole package is both already and not yet. They're held together. You can't separate them. And so we've been born again. We've been raised up from the dead spiritually. We've been redeemed. We've been justified. We are heirs. We have been adopted. We have been saved. But yet we also await our salvation. We await our redemption. We await a final resurrection. And we await a reception of our inheritance, which means that not only have we started running the race, but we realize that there is a finish line. And so, if you've started the race, what must you do? You must finish. Plain and simple. And so, why is it important to hold the already and the not yet in perspective? It is because it is in light of the already and the not yet that the warnings make sense as means to get to the end. Second, we need to understand the New Testament does not usually address whether or not the beginning of the race was real. Now, notice what I said. It does not usually address whether or not the beginning of the race was real. In other words, the primary focus in the New Testament, is not necessarily to, or I should say primarily, to diagnose the genuineness of salvation, but rather to issue warnings or threats for not finishing the race. 1 Timothy, chapter 1. You're in the neighborhood, so just turn back over there. Verse 18, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight. Which is another way of saying what? Finish the race, persevere, right? Then he says, verse 19, keeping faith and a good conscience, which... By the way, the which definitely refers to conscience here, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. And so, here you have... These guys, Hymenaeus, Alexander, Paul says they rejected a good conscience and suffered suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Notice, Paul says, by the way, does Paul give up hope on them? No, he actually says, I turn them over to Satan for the, right, that they might be saved. We'll talk about that in a minute. But here's the thing. Paul doesn't say, Hymenaeus and Alexander, 
who really weren't saved. He says, they shipwrecked their faith. So is that an emphasis on, was the beginning of the race real? Or is it an analysis of what happens if you don't finish the race? It's an analysis of what happens if you don't finish the race. It's called shipwrecking your faith. There are other examples. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Got to hurry up. Paul's speaking to Timothy chapter 4 verse 9. He says, make every effort to come to me soon for Demas... We're going to find at the end of Colossians, Demas is right there, one of Paul's companions. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me because he wasn't really saved. No. It just says, Demas, having loved this present world, deserted me. Is that an analysis of whether or not Demas was real? The answer is no. It's simply an analysis of the fact that he, because he loved the world, deserted Paul. Okay. You have other examples. Um, Ananias and Sapphira, right? Okay. You guys know the story. Um, Ananias and Sapphira sell a piece of property. They want to be big shots in Acts chapter 5. And of course, um, they're taking their offerings and putting them at the apostles' feet. And so um, Ananias takes his offering and he puts it at the feet of Peter. And he says, I sold my property for such and such. Here's the amount. And Peter says, wow, we'll get a new playground with this. No. He says, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Wasn't the money yours while you had it? You didn't lie to men, but to God. And then he drops dead. I'll tell you what. Those of you like, oh man, I long for the days of the church back in the times of the Acts of the Apostles. Yeah, where people drop dead right there in church for lying about their offering. Sounds great to me. (laughs) Sapphira is not there. You know what she's doing? I don't have exact proof for this, but a pretty good guess. She's taking that money that they held back and she's shopping. She doesn't know, no cell phone. She comes in and Peter says, did you sell for such and such? Sure. And he goes, okay, well, the guys that carried off your dead husband are here to carry you off. Okay. Now this is, this is church discipline enacted by God himself. <laughs> okay. And people go, were they saved? Now I just want to say it's a natural question. And at some point down the road, it is, it is an important question. But here's, here's the bigger question. Is there anything in the text in Acts 5 that actually leads us to think that that's the first question we should ask? What do you think the point of Acts 5 is? Don't lie to the Holy Spirit. Right? Not, oh my goodness, were they saved or they lost? No, that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is don't lie to the Holy Spirit. What about, what about the threat or, or the, the, the warning about Demas? Demas, having loved this present world, um, has departed from me. The point there is not, was Demas saved or lost? The point is, don't be like Demas. Don't love the world and depart from God's people. So you have to understand that sometimes, sometimes we are asking things of the text that may not even be the concern of the text. What, what ends up being most important for us as the people of God running the race? And here's, here's the answer. Keep running. That's the emphasis. That's, that's the point. Keep running. Don't be like Demas. Don't be like Ananias and Sapphira. Don't be like Simon the magician in Acts chapter 8. Don't be like those people. Are they in heaven? Who knows? 
Now, I have my opinions, all right? I have my opinions about Saul in the Old Testament, right? But guess what? In the final analysis, the point is not, can you discern their true spiritual state and their eternal condition? Their warnings. Their warnings. Now, number three, moving along very quickly, of course, is the New Testament does affirm the need to self, for self-examination. So 2 Corinthians chapter 13, when I was about 24 years old, a friend of mine called up and he said, and New Year's Day fell on a Sunday up in Portland. And uh, he called and he said, hey, would you preach this coming Sunday on New Year's Day? I thought, yeah, I'll preach. I mean, I never turned down an opportunity to preach, right? I could, be, I could be dying. I could be sick as a dog. I could have more stuff to do than you could imagine. And I would not pass up the opportunity to preach. And so I tell my, my friend, sure, I'll preach. And so I'm thinking, what's a great text? What is a great text for New Year's Day on a Sunday? 2 Corinthians 13.5. Test yourself to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Now, there were about 80 super old people in that church, and I preached on the importance of examining yourself, and I preached on the importance of not actually resting on decades of professing Christ, where are you right now? And man, I, at 24 years old, I preached my 24-year-old guts out and I thought, man, I, I nailed it. And I go and I stand at the back door and I'm ready to, you know, like. <laughs> People don't like to be told to examine themselves. Right? Is that not true? Like one of the worst sermons ever that you get, somebody says, hey, what Puritan should I read? Oh, read Matthew Mead, the almost Christian discovered. Don't read that. Well, read it, but not now. Why? Because sometimes self-examination, is it, is it necessary? Sure. Second Peter 1.10. Make every effort to make your calling and election sure. Right? So self-examination is part of the Christian life. But what I want to say is self-examination is not, was I real? Was I real? Was I real? Was I sincere enough? Was my faith bona fide? Self-examination is for me to look at myself right now you do understand that you could look back at the beginning of your race and then realize that that's not really when you started the race. And you may not even come to that realization until you're dead and in heaven. Self-examination is for me right now, for me today. Now, is self-examination something that I do every single day? Wake up in the morning, am I really walking with God? Do I really love God? And the answer is no. There are times that actually compel us to examine ourselves, right? By the way, is the Lord's Supper designed for us to examine ourselves? Of course it is. Okay. So there is some sort of regular discipline of self-examination. Could there be times where you're trying to talk to somebody? I'll give you a, a true story. I've told you this before. Years ago, uh, there was this young gal, and I couldn't get a hold of her, couldn't get a hold of her. She had come to church, and then finally, I showed up at her apartment which was not the apartment where she said she lived, and come to find out she was living with her boyfriend. Okay? And I said, you need to examine yourself and to see if you're really in the faith because you can't be a fornicator and a Christian. Was that a legitimate thing to challenge her with? Absolutely. Why? 
because she's living in a way that if she continues in that way, scripture is clear that, that for instance, fornicators don't inherit the kingdom of God. Is that a warning? My goodness, it most certainly is a warning. And if that warning is not being heeded, now if she would have said something like, you know, I've really been struggling and, and I know that it's wrong. And uh, would, would, you, would, you just, would you help me kind of get out of this situation? I, I want to repent. Is, is, that a good, is that a good fruit of self-examination? Absolutely. But the person that says, hey, you know what? I'm in love. God would not have put this love in my heart if he didn't want me to have this person in my life. You know, I've heard people say stuff that's that stupid. Okay? And so it's okay for you to violate the will and the word of God because he's a nice person. No. There are times where you have to say, you need to examine yourself. You need to see if your faith is real. Right now, the fruit of your life doesn't look like the fruit of a believer and so test yourself. Totally legitimate. But once again, it's not. Think back to a time that you can't remember when you were four years old and your mom wrote that date on the inside of your Bible. By the way, just as a footnote, anybody who puts banks all of their hope on a date written on the inside of the cover of their Bible because of a prayer that they prayed that they can't even remember. They're walking on really thin ice. The question that I need to ask myself is, where am I right now today? Do I have, I can't I can't answer whether or not I had a pulse back here in September of 1980. I look back and I I see good fruit and things like that, but I don't know for sure that that's when the pulse started. But you know what I can do? I can check my pulse today. The doctor says, how are you feeling? You look dead. You go, "I'm, I'm not dead. My pulse started beating in 1980. Well, it doesn't appear to be beating right now. Number four. The New Testament does explain why some do not finish the race. First John chapter two. Starting at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it might be shown that they were not all of us. So, this is probably one of the clearest theological explanations about those who actually don't finish the race. Now, we're going we're gonna to come back around to how to use this text, but let's just, let's just look at it for a second. How do we understand those who have, in, the, in verse 19, left the fold? Out from us they went, okay? The they, out from us they went, is, is John's reference to many antichrists. They were at one time, by the way, this will mess up your eschatology big time, all right? They were at one time members of the Christian community, but they seceded. Or they departed 
And so John says, out from us, this is, this is more literal rendering, out from us they went, but were not of us. What a powerful statement. John makes the statement that they were, that the reason they went out was because they weren't of us. At one time, they were with us. At one time, they appeared to be with us. At one time, they appeared to be in fellowship with us. And in in a sense, what John's talking about is he's talking about membership in the body, but a membership that is described like this. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And so John says they actually departed and the reason they departed is because they were not of us. Then John says, for if of us they were, that is, if they were truly a part of the Christian community, that is, truly in fellowship with us and with the Father and with the Son, if they were of us, here's what John says, they would have remained with us. This is actually not hard. If you read it really fast, it might sound a little confusing. You break down each of the clauses. It is crystal clear. They would have remained with us. That is, they would not have departed from us as antichrists, they would have stayed in fellowship with the Father, with his Son, and with his people. They would have remained within the body. They would have endured. And then John says, but in order to show that they all are not of us. Mm. John says that God has a way often of showing who's in and who's out. The little purpose clause, but in order to show that all are not of us. So what John's doing at this point is John is drawing the conclusion that their profession of faith was temporary and thus not real. He's saying that their very abandonment of the church, which is an abandonment of Christ, is a demonstration that they are not of us. In other words, John says, when they decided to depart from us, when they decided to commit apostasy, what they were doing is they were showing that they actually weren't of us. In other words, God peeled back the veneer and showed, they showed their true colors. Now, 1 John 2.19 is the biblical verdict on apostates. That is those who quit the race. They were never really of us, thus of the Father and of the Son. And I'm not talking about I'm not talking about our own local churches per se. You can have people that that leave for good reasons and go somewhere else. And we're not saying if you leave us, if you leave our group. What we're saying is if you leave the church, you abandon God's people. This This is why this whole I love Jesus but hate the church nonsense is absolute utter nonsense. It's absolutely impossible to say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Well, I don't like the church because it's full of hypocrites. Come on and join us. We could always use one more. (laughs) By the way, if the church was just this pure, pristine group of people that never sinned, we wouldn't have to hear sermons like we did this morning. That sermon was a blessing because that sermon calls me to account for how I live body life, right? 
picking up my marbles, going home. I'm going to go find where they do it right. Okay? No. That's your family. Bear up with them. Forgive them. Be clothed above everything else. Put on love, which is the bond of, of perfection. Be thankful. If the church was just simply a bunch of (laughs) almost glorified people, you'd never need to hear that. So, when by the way, when a person and this is this is off the notes, of course, when a person decides that they're abandoning the church because they've been sinned against or because they've been hurt. I don't want to minimize the reality of being hurt in the local body. Okay, It, It happens. And sometimes it's incredibly painful. I was talking to a man just a few weeks ago and he said, the very thought of going back to church, I feel like an altar boy that's being compelled to go back and serve mass under an abusive priest. Okay? So I'm not, I'm not downplaying the fact that we're sinned against. I'm not downplaying the fact that we get hurt. But what I am saying is that leaving the church is not the option. Living out the one another's is how you deal with people that sin against you and you against them. Okay. Well, that was free. So John says they weren't really of us. They weren't of the Father and the Son and thus of us because if they would have been of us, they would have simply what? Remained, remained. And the fact is, is that they shipwrecked their faith and the shipwreck of their faith shows that they had an empty, temporary, phony faith. Now, here's where we need to let the Bible create its own category for us. So what, what, what blows us away, I mean, how many of you, you can raise your hand if you want, how many of you have seen somebody that has, that has abandoned the faith, walked away from Christ and his people, and, and yet your, your, your mind is absolutely uh, just blown because you think, I prayed with that guy. I read scripture with that guy. I evangelized with that guy. We walked in in communion with one another. He was earnest. He was sincere. And so for us, it's like we can't wrap our heads around the fact that, that he may well have had a temporary phony faith. Now, What I'm going to say is our perception of sincerity gets trumped by the truth of God's word. Okay? So if I can't make sense out of this guy that, you know, there's a guy, we used to listen to Al Martin sermons all the time together. We used to talk about the Puritans all the time together. We used to pray all the time together. We were, it was like peanut butter and jelly spiritually. And yet this man has completely walked away from the faith. And I look back and you just go, how do I make sense of it? And there's a, there's a point in which you go, I can't make sense of it, but I know what the word of God says. Here's another freebie. If you're a parent and your kid has walked away from the faith, you do them no favors by holding out hope because they prayed to let Jesus into their heart when they were five. Years and years, decades ago, we had a lady, her son was as, it was a devil. And I'd say, he needs Christ. He has Christ. I was there when he was four and prayed to receive Jesus. 
He's an alcoholic. He beats his wife. He doesn't go to church. He doesn't walk with God. I know, but I was there. Okay. You know what? You coddle people like that. You assist the devil in their damnation. So what does the Bible category do? It explodes our, our, our understanding of genuineness and sincerity. And it says that the proof of real faith is not a temporary sincerity or temporary expressions of loving Jesus or temporary zeal, but an endurance within the community of faith. That's the real sign of faith. It is endurance, not Simply those fleeting moments of zeal and passion and earnestness. So, what do we do? First of all, it's a word of warning to all of us, right? So the the function of the warning passage is, it's for me. You know what the warning passages do for me? Keep fighting. Keep running. Don't you dare give up. Cry out to your father when you're weak, which is every other second. You cry out to your father when you don't feel like fighting again and you know you need to. You cry out to your father when you feel like you can't run anymore. And you keep running. And you let the threats actually do their work. I dare not give up. I dare not quit the race. I dare not abandon Christ or his people. There's a judgment coming. And so so how do you keep running the race? You keep on believing truth. You keep on trusting God. And by God's grace, you stay faithful. Maintain a good conscience. Keep a clear conscience. Don't compromise with conscience. Don't say, okay, I've got this little little traitorous sin that I've made a treaty with, and um, it's okay as long as he, he promises not to take too much territory. No. The whole pastoral ministry is littered with people that made compromises in their conscience and justified their little sins. Beware of the little foxes that do what? That ruin the whole vineyard. And so I'm committed not only to running the race, I'm committed to not only fighting the fight, I'm committed to not only keeping the faith, but I'm committed to killing sin. Not gonna, not gonna treat it like a bosom friend. I'm gonna treat it for what it is a traitor that has to hang. Word of hope to us. What about those who've quit fighting and quit running? Paul actually turned Hymenaeus and Alexander over to Satan. What does that mean? Well, he did it so they'd be taught not to blaspheme. I don't usually say things as broad as this, but there is, in fact, a general consensus that what Paul's talking about there is actually church discipline. That's, by the way, that's what happens when a person is, is put out of the church. They are no longer under the protective covering of Christ and they are now exposed in a world that's under the sway of the evil one, and, and God can use that to bring them back to himself. And so discipline, far from being cruel, is, is an act of love. And so what do we do with those that have that have fallen away? What do we do with those that don't walk with Jesus anymore? Well, Paul was convinced that the last chapter hadn't been written for Hymenaeus and Alexander. And so what do we do? We grieve for those that have abandoned the faith, quit the race. 
We grieve for those that have shipwrecked the faith. We avoid giving ourselves the placebo that says, well, I was, I was there when I, I saw them take communion and they were crying. But we pray. And we pray. We pray warfare prayer for that wayward soul. You are are engaging in a spiritual battle when you are praying for somebody who has apostatized and walked away from the faith. You are praying and you are praying that the God of heaven would do whatever it takes to wake him up, to wake her up, to turn them from their wicked ways. You pray and when do you stop praying? When they're dead. You... If they're breathing, you're praying. And then you urge and you plead and you appeal. And at times you beg with tears. They won't like that. They might get offended. If... If you're more worried about them getting offended with you than you are about them perishing forever, your priorities are screwed up. I'd much rather have somebody be so mad at me they could punch me in the face, spit in my eye, curse me out because I pled with them to examine themselves, to turn from their sins, Because I know that on that day, that if God does in fact turn them, they will be thankful. Not going to walk up in heaven and go, you remember that time you ticked me off by saying I wasn't a Christian? So I close with this. So Ariel and I get engaged. Is it okay if I tell this story? Ariel and I get engaged. It's 1987, 86. And, <laughs> and um, I'm like, okay, I need to, I need to, you know, I'm, I'm like 19, 20 years old. I'm really like, had no business getting married. But anyway, I'm thinking, I need to establish my headship. So, you know, Ariel's raised, and her mom was kind of liberal, kind of on the feminist side. So what I got to do is I got to get us over to Ephesians chapter 5 so that we get this whole headship submission stuff down because I don't want to be married to some unruly woman who's not being submissive to, to my brilliant 19, 20-year-old wisdom. And so... I thought it would be a little too obvious if I just said, hey, let's study the Bible. Let's turn over to Ephesians 5. So, we start in Ephesians 1. (laughs) We read the first chapter. And Ariel interrupts numerous times. What does he mean by that? Let's keep reading. Now, those of you who know, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, actually is one sentence, incredibly complex. She's like, I don't understand. Keep reading. I don't understand. What do you mean you don't understand? As if I understood. (laughs) Well, you know, this is how I would exegete this passage. And I said to her, you know what your problem is? Now, by the way, (laughs) young men, do you know what your problem is is not the way to start the discussion? 
Amen? Yeah, all right. And I said, hey, you know what your problem is? She looks at me like, what? And I said, you're not a Christian. Christians understand the Bible. Now, I would remind you that half of her ethnic heritage is Dominican. (laughs) At which point, she took her Bible, slammed it shut, threw it on the ground, and walked out. And I thought, whoop. Good thing I didn't buy a super expensive ring. <laughs> so I, I go back to school. And at Biola at that time, we had, a, we had the student union building. We had a fountain in front. There was, people always put soap suds and ink in it and stuff. So it was nasty. And I walk out of the student union building, and I see Ariel sitting there. And she's got her Bible. I said, what are you doing here? She says, after you left, I kept reading. And I read this over and over again. She points to verse 18. And she says, God has opened the eyes of my heart. And I understand what it means to be born again. And so I said, great, well, you want to rededicate your life? That's where my, that's where my mind was. Okay? And she says, I'm not talking about rededicating my life. I'm talking about being born again. I'm like, oh, Yeah, well, we should definitely recommit your life to the lordship of Jesus. You're not getting this. I'm born again. Now, do I recommend my barbaric methods? And the answer is no. I don't. But could it be in God's providential dealings with her that she needed to hear, you're probably not a Christian. And this is the part I didn't ask for permission on. Well, actually, I didn't ask permission for any of it. But (laughs) I would say, looking back, it was that moment that God used the idea, I may not even be a Christian, that compelled her to read and to read again. And so are there times where we say to somebody, more tactfully than that, but are there times where we say, you should examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. There's really, there's not a lot of fruit in your life right now. In fact, the Bible teaches us pretty clearly that those who are justified are those who are being sanctified. And, you know, maybe you should think about this. Maybe you should ask the Lord to examine your own heart. That's how we minister to people. If you have somebody that's struggling, use the promises of God to keep them running. If you have somebody that's presumptuous, use the warnings to keep them running. And what we find is that God's warnings and God's promises work in tandem to keep his people running all the way to the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for your work in the lives of your people. And Father, right now, every single one of us knows people who've quit the race. And Lord, sometimes it's just easy to stop praying for them. And we pray that you would revitalize our own concern for their eternal state. And we pray also 
that you would help us to take your warnings and your admonitions seriously so that we make it all the way to the end. And Father, we pray that you would give us the courage to speak those warnings and admonitions to each other when necessary. And so, Father, we thank you for all of your abundant goodness to us. Father, how we dare not take it for granted. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.